You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Executive Radio. And you might notice if you're watching this on video, not just listening to it in your car, that I'm at Huffington Post's studios sitting next to Ariana Huffington. Ariana, thank you for being a guest on Bulletproof Radio and for hosting us in your studio. I'm delighted to have you here and I have my Bulletproof cup. (laughs) Thank you. You wrote a book that had me so excited. I, I saw you interview with Joe Polish, um, who's a friend of mine, and I'm a member of his mastermind. And I said, Joe, you know, please introduce me to Ariana, which is a big ask because I know how hard it is to get a hold of you because you're pretty popular. Ten weeks straight, New York Times bestselling book called Thrive. But your book was such a cool book that I sort of kept at it because it seemed worth it to connect on that level with you. Why did you write your 14th book <laughs> about thriving and about things that are maybe very different than your other books. We'll just jump in. So really I wrote it because of my own personal experience of collapsing from burnout, sleep deprivation and exhaustion seven years ago, uh, hitting my head on the way down, breaking my cheekbone, getting four stitches on my right eye. And that started me on this journey of asking big questions that we often stop asking after we leave college, like what is success, what is a good life. And while by conventional definitions of success are successful, Mm -hmm. if you come to in a pool of blood and nobody has shot you, by any sane definition of success, you are not successful. (laughs) So that was really how I came up with the third metric of success. You know, the first two metrics of success are money and power, but this is like trying to sit on a two-legged stool, 
sooner or later you fall off. And the third metric, the third leg of the stool, is about our well-being, um, wisdom, wonder, and giving. And um, starting with well-being, we now have incredible scientific findings that make it very clear that contrary to the collective delusion we've been living under, burning out is not the way to be most productive and ultimately most successful, that we pay a very heavy price in terms of our health and well-being if we simply do not take the time to sleep, to renew ourselves, to connect with our own strength and wisdom, which is the second pillar of this third metric. That's uh, definitely a big vision in order to to talk with people about connecting there, but you sold your company for $300 million, which makes it a little easier (laughs) to focus (laughs) on those things. Um, I had a similar experience. When I was 26, I made $6 million, uh, and then I lost it when I was 28. (laughs) <laughs> because well, you maybe if you had slept more you wouldn't have lost it you know that is a totally reasonable argument the reason I did it is actually what you're talking about striving I told myself I have six million dollars at ten I'll stop which is ridiculous when you're 26 <laughs> I think six million dollars is enough for the average 26 year old to kind of like do fun stuff but I didn't even travel much like I, I was just working uh, and that I, that was when I read your book that really resonated with me you were also you know very focused and all that but what do you say to someone who's, you know, 25 and looking at maybe some student loans, wanting to get a car that doesn't break down all the time mm-hmm. and just getting going in their career and working 60 hours a week, two jobs because they want to make ends meet. You know, there's all these things they want to do, but it takes money and all that. How do you connect the message in your book back to someone who's still working on making sure that they have quality food? Um, absolutely key question, and that's why I have a, a whole section in the book where I address this question even going further than this. You know, people in extreme circumstances who've lost a job, who are facing real adversity. I even have examples from people in concentration camps because the point of my book is that wherever you are in your life, whether you are at the top of the world, dealing with multiple demands on your time and attention, or whether you are struggling to make ends meet, we need to remember what they tell us on the airplanes. Put your own oxygen mask first. (laughs) And when we put our own oxygen mask first, we connect with that center that we all have, and where we are at our strongest, wisest, where we can operate that are most productive and most creative. Because if you look at really how we spend our time, we waste an enormous amount of time by being distracted, by being tethered to our devices. Um, even the fictional person that you mentioned who is trying to get a car that doesn't break down, etc., etc has more discretionary time than he or she thinks. You know, somebody's watching House of Cards. So, <laughs> so it's just that at the moment, our culture hasn't really convinced people, because it, it's driven by this delusion, that uh, the more we actually prioritize connecting with ourselves, the more effective, productive, and creative we're going to be. 
nothing in my book is about um, chilling out under a mango tree. Yeah. And if you look at my schedule, I'm clearly doing as much and I think accomplishing more because I now get seven to eight hours sleep. Uh, because I do take time to meditate um, and walk and do yoga and whatever it is that works for each one of us. You know, this is not a, any kind of dogma. Each one of us needs to find out what's our own cocktail. You know, what are the things that by putting them together, we can operate from what has been known as the zone or being in the flow. Or We have multiple expressions for this state of being. And we all kind of know when we are there. But a lot of the time, we don't know how far away from it we are. I mean, I sometimes joke when I look at my iPhone and I have these very exact reports on the state of my iPhone, like 20% battery remaining, 17% battery remaining. You know, by about 13%, I get anxious and I look around for a, a recharging shrine lest anything happen to my iPhone. But the truth is that when I collapsed, I must have been below 0% battery remaining, and I wasn't even aware of it. Yeah. Uh, this is something I haven't talked about, but I had something remarkably similar happen. I, I flew to China, gave a talk, flew to Florida, <laughs> gave another talk, slept two hours, hopped on a plane back to San Francisco because I wanted to see my kids, and the security line was so long that I didn't get water and I didn't get coffee, so I was basically fasting the whole time. So I stood up on the airplane and passed out on the aisle. And I remember, of course, I didn't hit my head on anything on the way down. But I remember when I woke up, I was so mad because someone was rousing me from the most like peaceful sleep I've ever had. I'm like, I'm just sleeping here. Couldn't somebody just let me sleep? But that did kind of scare me. This was a, a couple of years ago. And I knew it was because I was so dehydrated yes, just because I yes. didn't buy a bottle of water. Um, but you can run to that limit, and right. you learned how to find where that limit is for you by experiencing it the hard way, and, and I've done something similar there. Uh, how do you recommend that other people learn to know when they're approaching that 13% battery life? What are the signs or the metrics that someone who hasn't been there right. would look for? Well, first of all, I hope that people uh, watching or listening now or reading Thrive uh, or reading what you're writing um, will realize that they don't have to have their own wake-up call before they can bring about Please changes don't. in their lives. You know, we can learn from each other's wake-up yeah. calls. We can learn from each other's mistakes. We don't have to make every mistake. And also, we can learn from science. This is why this is such an exciting moment. We now have incontrovertible scientific findings about these things. And that's why in, in Thrive I have 45 pages of scientific endnotes deliberately because I wanted to convince the most stubborn skeptic that this is not some kind of new agey, flaky, Californian stuff. You know, this is actually hardcore rooted in science and proof that if we want to be the most productive and creative we can be, if we follow these steps, and I have 12 steps in the book, mm -hmm. and I chose 12 deliberately because we are addicted to the wrong way of living. But if we follow these steps and we can take them one at a time, we can actually see transformational changes in our lives. 
And the steps are deliberately very small, very doable, really microscopic. And, and we can all pick whichever most resonates with us. I picked adding 30 minutes to my sleep every night until I got to seven to eight hours. And uh, I began to feel and act so differently <laughs> that that was its own reward that, that has now made me be so committed to prioritizing that. And that may mean that I didn't watch House of Cards last night or I didn't watch John Stewart or I gave up when I'm traveling or having dinner with friends. So it, sometimes it means giving up good things. But the fact that today I'm completely present here with you, that I feel recharged and enjoying what I'm doing and fully participating rather than as so often used to happen to me in the past, kind of dragging myself through yeah my to-do list and my meetings, and then crashing at night. <laughs> so I, I just feel that there is no trade-off. So, now here's an interesting question yes. for you. If you could take an anti-aging vitamin that gave you that half hour back, you got the same amount of sleep in a half hour less time, and it didn't have harmful side effects, would you take it? I don't believe it. I think mm -hmm. that... Uh, I, I'm not trying to sell yeah, makeup no, no, on it. No, I'm just like no. as a hypothetical idea. I'm just like, saying is, that, is I, I, unfortunately, yeah. I believe that anything we take, anything we put in our bodies, unless mm -hmm. it's herbs and yeah, so, vitamins. So magic turmeric know. juice or something. I'm saying if, if there was a nutritional intervention or some other thing like that, a non-harmful one, that let you get that half hour back, would you take it or would you well, still Well, right get now sleep? it's a lot more than half hour because, okay. you know, I went from four to five hours. Mm -hmm. To seven to eight hours. That's a lot. So that's a lot. But I'm infinitely more productive and creative. And the biggest growth of the Huffington Post happened after I was getting seven to eight hours. Oh. Because I was completely clear, for example, about where we needed to go. Like I was clear we needed to become a global media company. Three years ago, we were only in the United States. Now we're in 11 countries. And we have over 90 million unique visitors wow. and almost 50% of them are coming outside the United States. That is so impressive. And I can give you many other examples, yeah. which I'm only doing to show that as a leader, um, the more connected you are to wh what's your vision for your company, where you want to go and being clear about that and also seeing the red flags or the icebergs before they hit the Titanic, the more successful your company will be. So if you look at how many startups fail, you know, three quarters of startups oh, yeah. fail, and startup culture is notoriously driven by sleep deprivation and burnout, maybe there's a connection here. There, there certainly <laughs> is. Um, I remember as a young entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, the you know pizza and beer fueled things where yes <laughs> and I, I finally had to reject that although I'm definitely a fan of getting more sleep in less time um, just the sleep efficiency is a big thing for me um, but I finally was just like enough because that's hurting my performance at least as much as not getting good sleep where if if you're not fueling the body right and you're not yes. doing basically recovery protocols whatever yes. they are uh, it all kind of ends up somewhere and I. I just kind of shudder when I see people who are making the same mistakes I did uh, when I was in my early 20s 
because it doesn't, I mean, your startup will succeed or it won't. And if you, you know, live on peanut butter for six months <laughs> or something ridiculous, which I've seen, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you're a better person, but there's a certain like badge of courage, especially among young men, where it's like, you know, I, I beat the crap out of myself and, and that's part of how I yes. like prove myself. It's how, definitely, there's definitely a big macho component here. How do you counteract that? Like, how do well, you teach young men in order, like, how do you teach them to not basically destroy themselves? <laughs> I think we need two things. We need new role models. Okay. We need to show them the science. And you so did that, a great job, by the way, on the science in your book. Uh, you, you qualify as a biohacker for sure. Like, you, <laughs> you, you really got the data, which thank you for doing that because this is the hardest message to get through, especially to younger type A people who have the most to benefit from, from learning. Right, it, so. and, and also, I think when you also look at the cost we are paying, you know, the cost in terms of our health, the cost um, in terms of good decision-making, I quote Bill Clinton in the book who said, the most important mistakes I made, I made when I was tired. Yeah. And uh, he did not specify what mistakes, but we can all look at our lives and say something similar, you know, when I was tired, you know, I would hire the wrong person or be overreactive to something that happened, you know, all the things that, yeah. that happen when you're not operating from a centered, recharged place. And of course, nobody's ever going to be operating from that place 100%. So I'm not asking for anything that is um, utopian. The question for me is how quickly can we return to that place? And, and in the, the way I think of things, I use the word resilience a lot. Yes. Because it, it's fine if circumstances knock you over as long as you bounce back up. Absolutely, <laughs> It's when yes. you stay down because you can't get up that something was wrong. And that's why, to go back to your first question about people who are struggling, that's when you need to be resilient more than ever. Yeah. Because we see that the same um, negative um, fact can uh, completely destroy someone while someone else can thrive through it. I mean, I have a study in the book of uh, the Illinois Bell Company that uh, fired 25,000 people at the same time. And the University of Chicago tracked what happened to them. And three quarters of them um, kind of fell apart. And one and, and, and the rest thrived. You know, they went on to start their own companies, to find better jobs. It was the same adversity. But people reacted differently depending on how resilient they were, on how, on how connected they were to their own inner strength and wisdom. Doesn't a lot of that resilience come from your mother, like from your very early childhood experiences? Uh, when you look at the work of Hans Selye, Selye I don't know how to say his last name, <laughs> I just read it, but the father of modern stress research and epigenetics and all. So some people seem to come in with, I mean, they're bulletproof when they're born and they come into the world and they do whatever they want and they're always on top. And other people seem like they're, you know, fall down, get up, fall down, get up. I feel that anybody can transcend their, their circumstances and their how their parents brought them up or all these things. I think we are all bigger than that. Of course, um, it, we are very blessed if we have parents who brought us up a certain way. I, I feel very blessed to have a mother to whom the book is dedicated, who brought me up not to be afraid of failure, 
to take risks. You used to say failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. What a lesson. Um, yeah. But you also see in the world an enormous amount of people who had terrible childhoods and have been able to transcend them. Yeah. It, it's possible for everyone, uh, in my experience, being aware of where you are on that spectrum yes. is also helpful. It turns out I'm probably weaker than average in that I used to weigh 300 pounds, I had arthritis in my knees when I was 14, and I had all sorts of chronic stuff. And I fixed all that, but right. it, it took $300,000 and 15 years of work <laughs> to do it. But it, it is doable. Right, exactly. But if you don't know, and I didn't, as a young man, I didn't recognize I had any weaknesses. You know, like, I'm, like I'm, I'm smart, I'll go do, I'll be an entrepreneur, I'll do my own things. But I wasn't, I hadn't developed the self-awareness that was necessary to do that. Which is why your book is really cool, because you're sort of saying, look, I'm a pretty successful person. <laughs> here's all the, you know, here's my path and how I did that. But if, if people get that message, like plot where you are on the spectrum of resilience and figure out where you can improve. And you've got your 12 steps in the book, like maybe sleep more. And I would totally support that. Uh, I'd also say sleep better, like turn your thermostat down and make the room dark. Yes. But there's, oh, yeah. No, no, that's yeah. very important. I have actually a list of, oh, do of tell. about, I think, 12 things you can do mm-hmm. to sleep better. I mean, I have a little ritual myself, and you can find find your own ritual depending on what works for you. But I have a transition period. I think very often we have no transition period. Like we are on our laptops or our iPad and then we turn off the light and expect to go to sleep. So for me, some of my rituals involve a hot bath. I have Mm -hmm. a hot bath where for me it's like soaking the day away and it's like that day is done with all the things that were good in it and all the things that were bad in it and and now it's the period of transition. And um, I totally agree with you. I make my room completely dark. Oh, good. Um, if I can't, I wear an eye mask. <laughs> do you pick hotel rooms based on how good the curtains are? Yes. I do and too. And also, you know the other thing I do? I travel with a, um, a selection of scarves that I drape over the little blinking lights that are everywhere. <laughs> I travel with the electrical tape, and I just take a little square and stick it on there, so... That's good. It's a lot That's lighter. easier. Yeah, <laughs> I should get some electrical tape. And I was recently at a hotel in London, the Firehouse Hotel that just opened, and I absolutely loved it because it was very old-fashioned. They had no screens in the room. Oh, wow. They had an old-fashioned phone that even rang with an old-fashioned ring. That's cool. And then, the, and then by the phone, on a little the hotel writing pad, Handwritten was a message for anything you want, dial zero. <laughs> How simple is that? <laughs> so, but the, what was great is that you could get into bed and you, there were no blinking lights anywhere because there were no screens. And um, so darkness is very important. Uh, lowering the temperature, as you mentioned, is very important. Another thing for me is I have, I have nightwear. I mean, I, I used to sleep in my gym clothes mm-hmm. and now I sleep in my sleep clothes so that's part of signaling so that's to your like body signaling to my to body you're going to sleep you're not going to the gym and um, a friend of mine actually was my Cindy Levy the editor of Glamour and, mm-hmm. and she and I did a, a sleep challenge and we wrote about it and one of the things she sent me pink silk pajamas <laughs> um, but whatever it is that signals to your body you're going to sleep 
So, and a lot of other things, like a good pillow, etc. Yeah. Whatever it is to make your, your sleep more effective, I completely agree with you, that is key. And then another thing that's equally important for me is when you wake up in the morning, do not immediately go to your email. Yeah. That is key. In so many ways, um, including saying, I'm in charge of my agenda. The minute you go to your email, it's like saying, I'm in charge of the world's agenda. And whatever is important to you and you and you and you, I'm going to handle before I even have my cup of coffee. It's, it's true. It's so distracting to just jump on email in the morning. So you track your sleep like the number of hours of sleep, do you use one of those alarms that wakes you at the top of a sleep cycle or any of the other things, like number of steps per day? Like how much do you Oh, yeah, get I use, um, I have a jawbone that okay. I use. I, um, but I mostly agree with uh, Professor Rattenberg from the University of Munich. I quote him in the book, who's done research that shows you know when you've slept enough because you wake up without an alarm. Yep. So it's really very simple. I mean, these days I wake up without an alarm. That's got to be pretty crazy on your calendar, or do you just know yourself well enough to know you'll wake up in about eight hours? Because if you have a 9 a.m. meeting and you wake up at 9.30... Oh, no, I mean, I do put an alarm as a, as a precaution. As a backup. Okay. Yeah, as a backup. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But I, um, but I always wake up and turn it off before, before it goes. And I really, I prioritize going to bed based on what time I have to wake up. So I don't have a specific time I go to bed. It depends on whether I have to get up at 6 or 8, you know. So you go to bed earlier. You don't stick to the fixed bedtime. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is fascinating. (laughs) I've had the opportunity on Bulletproof Radio to talk with all sorts of different high-performance people, like like people who are on tour in bands and pro athletes and all. And it's not something that you often hear executives talk about, like how do I go to sleep at night? But it's one of those things that for me has shifted dramatically over the last 10 years, as I started getting more data and you look at the research, the stuff you're citing in your book, and it turns out that there are a good number of very successful people who realize, like, I get more out of every day. Exactly. Like, I'm I'm nicer to other people if you do something as simple as improve your quality or length or both of your sleep. What are the other big things that that maybe kind of low-hanging fruit from your book that people would want to learn about. Um, the audience for Bulletproof Radio, it runs, it's roughly half men, half women, uh, across the whole age group, starting around 20, going up to about 60. So it's it's a broad spectrum, but what would they benefit from knowing about the most, other than just buying your book, which is <laughs> Thrive, it's a good book. So another um, low-hanging thing, one of the 12 steps, is at the end of each day to... Find something, whether it could be resentment, a grudge, or a project that you're not really going to do and drop them. Oh, wow. It's like dropping something that no longer serves you. You know, that grudge you've been carrying around, does it really serve you? I have a quote, not you personally. <laughs> I hear you. Um, I have a, a quote from Carrie Fisher in the book. She said, Um, resentment is the poison you drink thinking the other person is going to die. Um, Or a negative fantasy about the future. You know, so often we have these negative fantasies about Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. um, And as Montaigne said, 
there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> so letting go of something that we fantasize about, that we worry about, but it's a fantasy. So it, that is remarkable. You're going straight to forgiveness, essentially. When you drop yes. a grudge, you're forgiving yes. whatever that thing was. And in my own life, I've, I've worked on the steps to forgiveness. And gratitude, for me, is something that comes before forgiveness. Because I always found it hard to drop a grudge until I could find at least one good thing that came out of it. Mm. It's like, oh, I, I lost $6 million. Like, okay. <laughs> I learned an awful lot when I lost, so I can be grateful that I lost $6 million because it you know, put me on this whole different path. Right? And it's that gratitude that lets me then progress to the forgiveness step and you know, dropping the grudge and you're refusing to carry someone else's burden, which right. is really what that grudge is. That's great. And I think um, I completely agree with you. I think gratitude is grace. And living in a state of gratitude for me is living in a state of grace. And, and it's a constant process. It's definitely one of the steps in Thrive. Um, my daughter that I write about in the book who got involved in drugs in her last year at Yale and, um, and we took her out and she's been sober for two and a half years and she decided to write about it to help other young people. But one of the things that helped her in her recovery was doing a gratitude list every night uh-huh. that she shared with three other friends and they shared their list with her. Oh, that's powerful. And wow. that was very powerful. And she continues to do that. And in our family, you know, around meal times, you know, remembering and stating what we're grateful about is, is just very key. So I completely agree with you. I've I started doing that with my four and a half year old and my seven year old before bed. We, we pick three things in the day that we're grateful for. That's fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm really working to build that practice. And of course, I have to tell them my three and they tell me theirs. And it, it's amazing some of the things that they'll say they're grateful for because you get little nuggets of wisdom from the kids. So I have no idea what that'll mean when they're you know, 20 or 30, but I'm. Well, it will definitely be ingrained in them yeah. because we are, our minds so often go to the negative. And that definitely had sort of an evolutionary purpose. Like if you're being pursued by a lion, mm-hmm. you'd better focus on the lion rather than the, the rainbow in the sky. Right. But, um, but it's now far exceeded its usefulness because we remain in a perpetual fight or flight mode even when, in fact, um, there is no real danger around. And, you know, I also mentioned in the step dropping projects that we're not going to invest ourselves in because that's also another energy drain. It's a huge energy drain. Um, how do you manage that? So I, I, I am running a, a very small company, uh, and I get... I would get 10 phone calls a day if people could find my number <laughs> uh, from people who wanted you know, to do a deal or, or whatever else. So I, I've put some filters in place. Not that I don't want to talk to all those people, I just don't have the hours in the day. And I imagine the, the pressure on you must be about a thousand times greater than that because of your stat, status as a media figure. How do you filter all those inbound opportunities? And, and they're almost countless. My mind, I think, would probably start to explode and creak a little bit if I was subjected to the same like inbound. It's positive pressure, but it's still pressure. 
What's your practice for filtering that? Well, here's what is so interesting, that when, when I am in this centered place that we described earlier and we all agreed nobody's going to be there all the time, um, then I have a lot of clarity about what I'm going to be involved in and what I'm not, including things in my personal life that I might want to be involved in. That's what I mean about dropping projects. Like, just to give you a personal, silly example, you know, I always wanted to become a good skier, and I'm a lousy skier. <laughs> and um, one day when I was doing these regular mini life audits, I said to myself, you know what? I'm never going to invest enough time and energy into becoming a good skier, so this is a project that I'm going to drop. And it was very liberating. It was wow. like saying to myself, you can complete a project by dropping it, by telling yourself, this skiing is done. So now when, <laughs> when my daughters want to go skiing, I go with them and I sit by the fire when they're skiing and I drink hot chocolate and I read a good book. And I have no residual, oh, one day I must become a good skier. So you're not dealing with any sort of guilt or should have or, or, or even going. just residual um, I'm going to put some energy into this one day feeling. And the same applies to projects at work. Um, the same applies to unfinished books or anything. You know, it's like we don't have to finish something. If this is no longer serving us, we can complete it by dropping it. When you drop it, do you make a conscious decision to drop something versus delegate it and say, make it someone else's problem? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. I couldn't. I, I wish I could delegate becoming a good skier, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> if you figure that one out, let me know. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I think delegating is key. I okay. think um, having a, a good leadership team. So that, if, for, for example, when in the, around Christmas I was in Hawaii with my daughters and my ex-husband, I'm also very big in co-parenting mm -hmm. beyond divorce. And we have a divorce section here that focuses on that because mm -hmm. with so many marriages ending in divorce, it's important to learn that because otherwise your children pay the price. Yeah. So there we were on vacation and I, I was doing a digital detox for a week. Um, so I was only checking email twice a day with the office. So that meant having a team in place that I could delegate things to and trust that they would deliver. And if needed, they would get in touch with me. You said the T word, trust. Yes. So how much of that week did you spend with fear that the people you were trusting <laughs> would not follow through? Or None did you at have all, the because okay, I so already that have that team. Got it. In place. You know, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't, and there were many times when I didn't. <laughs> Got it. So, so you built uh, the confidence first. But I think, yes, okay. you build the confidence, you build the team. And, but that's part of, I mean, any leader who thinks they yeah. can micromanage everything, they basically are saying we cannot grow. Yeah, they're not a leader at that point. Yeah, because also um, growth is dependent on, on, on the ability to delegate and, and have a team in place. That is true. You wrote a lot in your book about the different effects of stress on women and women in the workforce, uh, which is, I would say, something that's underserved. Yes. When, when I read about human performance and even things like paleo dieting and all that, like it, it's very kind of, you know, thump your chest sort of stuff sometimes. 
Um, when I look at what it takes to be a good entrepreneur, one of the the kinds of energy that, that at least I feel or envision, it's, it's a nurturing kind of energy for, to a company. And I honestly, being a, a father uh, and a, a CEO, it's a lot of the same. So like your company is your baby, not like your actual baby, but it's something that, that you've put so much energy into. Um, do you feel as a mother and you know a CEO that, that the energy is similar? And is that why it's so much harder for women sometimes to, to do this, you know, power, money, the sort of the, the different things you write about in your book in order to do this and why so many of them sort of step back? Is it because there's only so much nurturing energy they have, or they aren't taking care of themselves? Like, like I think what what, this, what the recent scientific findings are telling us is that women internalize stress differently. So, women in stressful jobs have a forty percent greater risk of heart disease and a sixty percent greater risk of diabetes. And I, I was so struck by this. Um, scientific finding that I used it twice in the book, you know, in two different contexts, because I feel we really need to pay attention to that, because as women, it means we have less of a margin to live life from a stressful, burnt-out place. And um, one of the reasons is that, you know, we all have that voice of judgment and self-doubt in our heads, but in women, it's particularly loud and harder to, to basically shut off. I call this voice the obnoxious roommate living in my head. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've dealt with it to the point where it now only makes guest appearances. But I think it's, it's really important to, um, to recognize that because that voice drains a lot of energy yeah. um, and um, increases stress, uh, we have less margin. It's that voice is something that I hear with with my coaching clients. All of them have some degree of it or another, and there's so many different techniques. Most of which revolve around meditation or yes. some sort of therapy around turning it off or turning it down or gaining control of it. And certainly, a, a good amount of it comes from the body itself. Like you're starving, the tiger is going to get you, or, or you know, what those old primordial messages that we have. Uh, and then some of it comes from a more conscious place. And I was entirely unaware of that uh, when, when I was younger because the voice has always been there, like the voice is you. And then recognizing that, well, wait, it's kind of not me. Yes, <laughs> and, and that's it's really it. yes. separate and annoying. And it doesn't speak the truth. <laughs> yeah. What's your advice for people who want to learn when their voice is telling them the truth or not? Is, is there a trick you found? Well, yes. Again, it goes back to... Um, Learning to steal our minds, it, we're never going to stop our thoughts. Yeah. It's just that when we also have a reference point of stillness, um, we don't have to follow every thought and become its slave. Um, and, you know, we're talking about becoming slaves. Becoming the slaves of technology is also something which is one of the big problems of our time. You know, you and I both come from... Um, kind of technological backgrounds in one form yeah. or another. Here yeah. we are in a 24-7 media company, which is also a technology company. Um, so we are both very aware of the glories of technology and everything that 
has been made possible, but also I'm acutely aware of the dangers of being perpetually tethered to our devices and what that does in terms of our inability to connect with ourselves and our loved ones. And that's why one of the steps in the book is at the end of each day, pick a time when you turn off all your devices and gently escort them out of your bedroom. There has to be like a sacred space at night when you just sleep. And I've, I've gone further than that, and I only have real books by my bed. And uh, I love to read books that don't have to do with work before I go to sleep, which often may just be for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, but I love to read poetry and philosophy and novels, and just basically reminders that however great our jobs and however lucky we may be that we love our jobs, we are more than our jobs. Like if you didn't have your job or if I didn't have my job, that doesn't mean we wouldn't still be in our essence who we really are. Yeah, you'd be exactly the same person, just doing something different. That's, it's pretty profound given how much we identify, especially as we get more successful that way. Um, I got my MBA at Wharton and this was, there's been a couple of big layoffs since then. And it's kind of amazing when you get, you know, the, the big degree and, and, you know, you're whatever, a management consultant yeah. or a banker or an entrepreneur or a VC, whatever it is. Uh, and then all of a sudden it all stops. And looking at it, it, the impact on friends when, they, when that's happened and even on me when, when things have, have gone the way I didn't plan in my career, it almost feels like you've died. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it is an enormous stress. And yes. you've seen the WHO list of stressors. And losing your job is like almost like losing a loved one in terms of the way we take it biologically, but it's all fake. Like We take it that way biologically because that little voice in our head took over. Yes. And I found, as I learned how to master my brain, often using technology to train myself to do that, um, I went through a layoff once where I was working for a publicly traded company. I helped plan the layoff. I knew I was not on the list, and at the last minute, they added me to the list. Um, for good reason, because I had a team that was awesome, so they could do my job, and I kind of expected that. But I was, I was annoyed, and I would have taken that personally and just been devastated and you know, held a grudge for years. But I had just done enough that I, I sat there for a little while, and I said, all right, I went home, and I, I told my wife, Lana, I, I said, I, I've got great news. And she goes, what is it? I, I said, I get to take some time off. <laughs> and it, it totally didn't stick. And that was like the first time in my career that something like that had happened. And it was because I had gained some of that inner awareness, the yes. control over that, instead of just you know, being reactionary, just being like, I'm not this job, even though it's you know, kind of a fun job. Well, and also, even people who are like you were at that time were able to support themselves for a period without the job. Even they are feeling an incredible pressure to immediately get another job. I have friends of mine who have made a lot of money and then something happened, they were let go or uh, there was a change in their careers and they suddenly find themselves with time on their hands and the opportunity maybe to take that time to decide what they want to do next, but they're very nervous about taking that time and not being in a job. And I was recently on um, doing Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, and she asks everybody the same question, which is, what do you know for sure? 
And what I said to her is a version of what we were discussing here, which is I said that what I know for sure is that no matter how magnificent your job is, opera, or how good my job is, who we are in our essence is more magnificent. Wow. That is profound. There's a question that I've asked everyone who's been on the show. And so that's more than 120 people now. And I'm dying to know your answer to this. And the question is, given everything you've learned, not just in Thrive, this book, or your career, just at life's lessons, the three most important pieces of advice you would offer to people who want to perform better. I don't mean perform better at work. Yes. I mean perform better as human beings doing whatever it is they're here to do. Only three. What would they be? So the first thing is that that we are more than our jobs. That is the first thing. And to really be fully aware of that and to give ourselves some time to actually connect with that reality and that truth because so often we give ourselves no time at all to connect with that essence that Archimedes, you know, the Greek mathematician, said, give me a place to stand and I can move the world. And we all have that incredible place of strength and wisdom and peace, um, but we need to honor it and give ourselves some time to be in it and live our lives from that place. And the second is what I already mentioned, which has to do with failure. Um, my mother's advice that failure is not the opposite of success, it's a stepping stone to success. And the third one is something else my mother taught me, which is don't miss the moment. Because that's the one thing we know we have for sure. Life is much more fragile than we think. And we don't know when things will change for us. And um, unfortunately, we all think that by multitasking, we're going to be more efficient. But this is a complete lie we tell ourselves. You know, multitasking doesn't make us more efficient. It just makes us miss the moment. And it doesn't really exist. You know, scientists have told us that multitasking is really task switching. Yeah. It's the most stressful thing we can do. And, um, and yet, we all think that that's a badge of honor. It makes it uh, clear how busy and important we are, that we can't just be doing one thing at a time. So it all comes back to ego at the end of the day, because you, you, you feel like you have <laughs> to do it to, to be a good person. It, it's a tricky path to navigate. When people want to buy your book, is there anywhere they should go in particular? Because I want to make sure that um, people who are listening to this um, do get a chance to read it because, I, I mean, I, I interview um, a good number of, of authors, um, but I think you really nailed it with this book. You put the science in to back it up, um, and you, you've just got a unique perspective that I haven't seen in a book like this. So I, I really appreciated it. So if, if you're listening, you should buy Thrive, but is there a thrivebook.com or some URL? I should know this, but I don't. Thank you so much. No, um, you can buy it from a bookstore, you can buy it from Amazon, you can buy it from barnesandnoble.com. Okay. The only thing that we have is a, is a site, huffingtonpost.com slash thrive, okay. that shows where I'm going to be speaking next. So if anybody wanted to come, then um, they would find out 
um, by going to HuffingtonPost.com slash drive where I'm going to be next. And also, I wanted to invite anyone who is listening or watching who may want to write about these things and tell us their stories, uh, whether it's stories of burnout and wake-up calls or stories of how they thrive, uh, to do so. And you can email me at ariana one hour and two ends at HuffingtonPost.com because I believe that by having this conversation, by sharing stories, we'll be able to accelerate a shift that's already happening. The shift is happening and your book is helping. So, Ariana, thank you for writing a book. Thank you for being thank on you. Bulletproof Executive Radio today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If you haven't had a chance to learn about our new sleep induction mat, check it out on the website at upgradedself.com. It helps me get to sleep faster and very specifically to get more deep sleep. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.